Hello, this is John Halsman, and welcome to the latest Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast, where we try to make sense of the beguiling new planet we find ourselves on. And boy, I'm in the middle of campaigning mode, and I'm glad to be back home, if only to do this with you guys before I head off again. I am just back from Amsterdam, where I gave a morning keynote, and I'm just off at the weekend to L.A., where I'm giving two speeches, then Zurich, where I'm giving another two speeches, taking the train back to Milan, and then a week later flying off to New York to play a war game. So it is busy, busy, busy. And of course, this is a teachable moment for the political risk industry is booming in general, and with me in particular. Uh, I think we've done extremely well, and our call record is is catching up to us, and now people are desperate to hear what's really going to happen next. But in general, the reason political risk is doing so well is because there are real risks out there that are clear to everyone, be it the cost of living crisis, the coming recession, the war in Ukraine, or problems with China. Everyone's aware that there's risk everywhere, and if you can make sense of the world right now, I think you're on to a winner. And today we're going to grasp the probably the single biggest scare of the moment, which is nuclear war over Ukraine. And uh, I can't believe I'm even saying this, because since John F. Kennedy expertly saw off the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, and oddly enough, for all that in some ways Kennedy is overrated, somehow his work on the missile crisis is actually underrated because he did save the world from Armageddon. Kennedy himself said at the time there was a one in three chance of a nuclear war. And I think he's being modest. I think it was more like 50-50. But because of some adroit work with both Jack Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, and Robert McNamara, some wargaming, and an incredibly disciplined president who understood what our primary interests are, we saw off nuclear Armageddon. But one of the rules that came out of the Kennedy crisis, the Kennedy rules as they're known, were that superpowers do not directly confront each other, that that is the great danger that could lead to nuclear war. Sure, they can fight proxy wars. The Soviets helped to finance North Vietnam to the hilt. The United States financed the Mujahideen against the Soviet Union. This is normal. This is how great powers compete against one another. But in a nuclear age, you do not directly confront one another or you're leaving yourself open to a world of hurt and that this needs to be avoided at all costs. And we've managed to do that. But at the moment, we're heading, drifting uneasily toward the Kennedy rules being broken. Because if you look at what's happening in Ukraine, on the face of it, this is very good news that the Kharkiv counteroffensive, which began in early autumn, late summer, where the Ukrainians did a great head fake. And we're, we're talking about doing more in the south of the country, but instead attacked in the north of the country around Kharkiv and made some real progress and the Russians have been thrown back a good bit. And certainly the geostrategic imperative, the strategic military uh, momentum lies with the Ukrainians. Now, winter is coming, and this will come to an end soonish, but it's opened up the possibility that nobody's really thought about since the Kennedy rules, which is, what do you do when a nuclear power begins to lose territory they consider to be central to their being? This isn't Afghanistan or Iraq or Vietnam, a faraway area that, yes, it's humiliating you lose in, but something more akin to Mexico for the United States. And certainly Vladimir Putin views Ukraine in those kind of terms. What happens to a nuclear power that's losing in its own backyard? This is something nobody's really thought about and hasn't had to think about since Jack Kennedy bested Khrushchev in 1962. 
And so that's part of the problem that we're in, that the Russians are now on the defensive. Now, again, winter will take its toll. The Russians have talked about calling up an extra 300,000 troops. The real number is probably about half that. They're only going to be able to call up about 150,000 reservists who are largely cannon fodder. It doesn't mean they're going to be any good. But as Stalin said, at some point, quantity becomes quality if there's enough of it. And so this will make a, a change in the war. Also, the war will grind down for the winter, as it always does, which will give Putin a strategic respite. But on the other hand, the Ukrainians are going to get more and more American wherewithal and get better and better at using it over this period of time. So come the spring, the offensive capability could still be with Ukraine as the spring comes to us. And this has already led Putin to make some defensive and panicky moves. He's had fake referenda in Kyrgyzstan in the south, which is the major city of 200,000 people. This was taken early in the war by the Russians, which is the linchpin to their southern strategy, um, as well as he's annexed through sham referenda the Donbass, Luhansk, and Donetsk as well. He's annexed through the sham referenda about 20% of Ukrainian territory. Now, the reason this matters is that the Russians have in their nuclear doctrine a rule that they're allowed first use of nuclear weapons if they think their own sovereign territory is in play. And so by annexing them, Putin is warning the Ukrainians off an offensive by saying, if you invade areas that we now think are part of Mother Russia, they're not, but that we are saying are, uh, we could very well use tactical nuclear weapons. And the reason he's saying that is precisely because he's losing. And nobody's thought about this. A nuclear power, great power, losing a war in its own backyard is not something we've had to think about since the Kennedy rules descended on us in 62. And so that's the situation that we're in at the moment. Well, the first thing to say is that it's very important to assume that leaders mean what they say and say what they mean ultimately. Yes, there's lying, there's obfuscation, there's passing the buck around. But in general, leaders tend to mean what they say and say what they mean. And that's precisely why my firm called the invasion correctly in November of last year to occur in February, because we were actually listening to Vladimir Putin and taking him seriously, unlike the Ukrainian government and most of the European governments. One has to give the American CIA credit in this case. They've been wrong about an awful lot, but this they got perfectly right when they said that they thought an invasion would happen, as did we, because we took Putin seriously. Well, we should take him seriously now. Because the danger for Putin is that when you lose or are humiliated, it isn't like the British system where if you're a failed prime minister, Boris Johnson comes to mind, you go on a lucrative multi-million dollar speaking tour, you write a book, maybe you get made a member of the House of Lords and you have a really very passably nice life after you've been ejected from power. No, think the Romanovs in the basements murdered by Cossacks. That tends to be what happens when a Russian leader fails. They are murdered, or at best, like Khrushchev after the humiliation of the Cuban Missile Crisis in the coup that happened in 1964, he was under virtual house arrest for the rest of his life. That's the good outcome. But there is a terrible penalty to be paid in Russia for political failure that we don't understand in the West. And Putin is well aware of that, that if he loses in Ukraine, his life isn't worth very much at all. And so this makes him dangerous. And this is why I think he means what he says, because he sees the domestic political imperatives, which are different than in the West, which is that he simply can't lose, that if he loses too badly, 
to save his own life, he's more than willing to use tactical nuclear weapons. Again, this would not be global Armageddon, but a tactical nuclear weapon would break all civilized norms since the Kennedy rules came down in 1962, and we would then live in the jungle. And this would be a world global crisis of the first order that we need to head off, if at all possible. And the first step in heading it off is to take Putin seriously. He means what he says. And the reason I think he means what he says is because the domestic political imperatives are so great. It isn't retirement. It's death in a basement, as happened to Nicholas II and his family, or being exiled to a dacha, as happened to Khrushchev. And because Putin knows this, he is likely to play very rough indeed when it gets to areas that Russia considers sacrosanct. Now, he has been very specific about these areas. This isn't in the north in Kharkiv, where the Ukrainians have made gains almost up to the Russian border. Particularly, he has mentioned Crimea, which was annexed by Russia in 2014. And I think we have to really look at the various regions differently. Kharkiv, he can lose plenty of territory up into the border and there's no problem. Crimea, however, is a different matter. I've been to Crimea, actually, long story, but in the early 1990s, I, I spent some time in Crimea, three or four weeks. And this is a Russian-speaking area that was part of Russia proper for most of the last thousand years. And if there had been a free and fair election before Putin annexed it forcibly in 2014, it probably would have voted to join Russia. It was only Nikita Khrushchev who gave it to Ukraine for reasons that pass understanding that changed this. But this is, the, this is where Sevastopol is which is where the Black Sea Russian fleet operates out of. It has great strategic value in the center of the Black Sea and is Russian-speaking and was and thinks of itself as Russian. It was only Khrushchev who upset this. It is unlikely in the extreme that Putin will let Crimea go. And if Ukraine begins to make moves in that direction, I think there's almost no doubt that the Russians would use tactical nuclear weapons. And we have to be absolutely clear about this. The area that's a huge question mark is over the Donbass, the Russian-speaking provinces in the east, Luhansk and Donetsk. He conquered a good bit of it, about half of it before 2014, when he went in after um, and when he was taking Ukraine. And it's an open question as to whether he really thinks this is part of Russia proper. And so we simply don't know if he'd use nuclear weapons if the Ukrainians got on a roll and began to take territory in Luhansk and Donetsk. Certainly he might. Um, as for the rest of Ukraine, I think he won't. They have no innate claim to it. And so I think the second step in really making this work is to look at things very, very clearly and differentiate. Over Crimea, yes, I think he would. Over the Donbass, there's a question mark over the rest of the country, far less likely that he would use nuclear weapons if the Russians were routed in the early spring. Um, so if point one is we need to take Putin seriously, point two is we need to differentiate what areas in Ukraine he's actually likely to think are areas he simply can't afford to lose and politically survive and physically survive for that matter. And these are the ones he would use nuclear weapons for. That's the second point. And the third point is the United States actually has to articulate its war aims, which it hasn't done. Up until now, the Biden administration has written a blank check to the Ukrainians. Although everyone, or by everyone, most everyone, certainly everyone who follows this podcast knows I would be included in this list, were for giving Ukraine defensive weapons to head off its dismemberment as the war started. After this, 
the United States has been very unclear about what its war objectives are. And this is very strange, considering the United States is bankrolling Ukraine. And without the United States, Ukraine literally would not exist. The United States has given more wherewithal to Ukraine in terms of assistance, both civilian, humanitarian, and military assistance, than the rest of the world put together. Let me repeat this. The United States has given the Ukrainians more aid of a humanitarian nature, of a civilian nature, and of a military nature than the rest of the allies put together. If you are the one whose birthday party it is, you get to pick the party tunes. And the United States so far has not done this, but simply cheered on Zelensky from the sidelines, somewhat witlessly, not understanding the basic rule of realism, which is that no two countries have exactly the same interests. Even core allies, Butch and Sundance allies like the UK and the US or Israel in the US or Australia in the US have different and differing interests depending on the issue. We may agree on 90% of the agenda, but there's still that 10% we don't agree on. And by witlessly pretending the US doesn't have different interests than the Ukrainians, we're setting ourselves up for real nuclear peril. And I can't believe I'm saying this because it is not in the American interest that we have a nuclear crisis over a second order priority, which Ukraine certainly is. It absolutely is not. And the only way to avoid this is to understand Zelensky's interests, which are clear. He wants to retake every inch and every mile of Ukrainian territory. And he has said so. And as is true with Putin, I believe Zelensky, because if he didn't have that view, he wouldn't be president for long. That is the overwhelming and understandable view of the Ukrainians and their national interests. But that is not in the national interests of the United States. And that is what President Biden ought to be caring about. So rather than witlessly cheerleading from the sidelines, it would be better if the United States actually articulated what its national interests are. First and foremost is to avoid a nuclear war here. We've already achieved our primary goal of keeping Ukraine a unitary state. Putin knows he cannot gobble up all of Ukraine. That has been accomplished. But secondarily and vitally in a primary interest is not to have a nuclear crisis over what is a second order priority for the United States at best. And the only way to avoid this is Zelensky is going to go for rollback, which is understandable given his position, is to make our position clear and make it crystal clear privately that as we are keeping Ukraine afloat day by day, we get to determine what happens as an outcome because we are simply paying for it. And that is what matters here. And avoiding nuclear war must be first and foremost what matters. So what kind of outcome can we have? I don't agree with Elon Musk's ultimate outcome, but I like very much that he's thinking in policy terms about what needs to be given away, what needs to be kept, and what can be done to wind down a war that isn't going to wind down anytime in the near future. But we have to begin to think that way if we're going to get there and if we're going to avoid a nuclear conflict over Ukraine. So what can be done? I think it is entirely defensible that we keep to 2014 boundaries so that we go back to the boundaries before the war started. This means Crimea de facto will remain part of Russia. This means that the, the, the Donbass will be partitioned with part of it being Ukrainian back to the 2014 lines and part of it being Russian. That means the rest of the territory by and large will remain Ukrainian. I think that that is a deal that we can sell that will avoid nuclear conflict. At the same time, the Ukrainians need to be reassured that their EU membership is being taken seriously and will not take place in centuries 
as President Macron of France suggested, and that there will be a real path toward EU membership. And we need to lean on the European allies to actually do something here. Also, we need to lean on the Germans to help pay for the reconstruction of Ukraine. The Europeans, and I repeat this, must be the primary people paying for the civilian reconstruction of Ukraine, which will run into hundreds of billions of dollars. This is on them. We've done in the United States the, the military wherewithal. This is a European problem. We need to pivot to Asia where we have primary interests at stake. All the risk and all the future reward in the world are in the Indo-Pacific. And as we've helped bail out Ukraine, a second order priority, it's time for the Europeans, for whom this is a greater priority, to pay. And so they can pay for the civilian reconstruction of Ukraine, which will run into hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars, primarily the Germans after their feckless energy policy and after getting Putin wrong for two decades, can pay up. And so they pay up, there's a track to EU membership, and Ukraine itself maintains its strategic contiguity. On the other hand, they're not getting into NATO anytime soon. And so based on my plan, you would have a settlement where Vladimir Putin saves just enough face. You go back to the 2014 boundaries that Crimea de facto is run by Russia, that the Donbass is partitioned, that Ukraine still is a sovereign entity with a path to EU membership where its reconstruction is paid for by the Europeans, particularly the Germans. And we have an agreement that satisfies no one, but is just enough to satisfy everyone and gets us out of the problem of seeing two irreconcilable positions. And the problem at the moment, and I remember working on Northern Ireland when I was just starting my career in D.C., and one of the things I learned was that the only reason that the Protestants and Catholics came to the table was that they realized they could not win by war what they wanted in terms of their political aims. Always, as Clausewitz said, war is merely politics by other means. And when they realize they can't get what they want politically, they come to the table. At the moment, with winter grinding the war down, Everyone still believes the Russians and the Ukrainians, they can win next year what they want in maximalist terms. So there will be no deal now, but we have to begin to prepare. The Biden people should prepare the Ukrainians as to what American war aims are so that when both sides realize they're not going to get everything that they want, they come to the table and reach an agreement roughly based on what I just said. Crimea and the 2014 boundaries. So Russia maintains part of the Donbass, all of Crimea. The rest of Ukraine remains a contiguous state, a sovereign nation. It is reconstructed with European money, and it is an open path to EU membership. This is an outcome that would satisfy neither side, but gives both sides just enough that they can get on with their lives and the war can come to an end some point in the future. We're not there yet because both sides still think they can win militarily, and you need both to actually realize they can't. So there's a long way to go. But this kind of outcome in the United States privately articulating, it doesn't need to be public. I'm all for secret diplomacy. I'm a realist. You can talk privately and say to the Ukrainians, we will not let you use our money to take Crimea, which could trigger a nuclear conflict. We have every right to say that as it's our money and we're the superpower paying the bills. On the other hand, we have a right to say to the Russians, you're going to reap what you sow. You're not going to gain a kilometer of territory from when you started this invasion. So everyone in the world can see that aggression doesn't pay. And we leave them ostracized. And we leave them until they make moves to behave in a more responsible way in the international community, a pariah state. And that is more than enough. If we blunt their aggression and leave them a pariah state, people will think twice 
about upsetting the international order. This is the last best hope to avoid a genuine tragedy and first order disaster. Because I can't believe I've used the word nuclear war seriously in sentences, but I've had to. And the only proper ethical realist thing to do is get ahead of this and talk honestly about what American interests are in a way the Biden administration has run away from until now. It requires responsible leadership to avoid the worst. And that is what we owe our people. And that is what we owe the world. Thank you very much. Very happy to get this off my chest. I did this without notes. So the coffee kicked in. That's great. For those of you who haven't subscribed, please do so. We're delighted so many of you have. And for those of you who have, again, for the price of one of my beloved espressos, $70 a year, we can keep them coming and give you absolutely non-mainstream, but media, but on the money political risk analysis. Remember, we called the war right. The rest of these guys did not. And we'd like to now call the peace right. Take care and talk to you soon.